Lord's Day morning. We thank you for our brethren who are with us here uh, at a distance, and we thank you for the technology that brings us together. Thank you for Brother Caleb, who's helping us out with this. And we pray that you would make our time this morning profitable to all of us uh, through your Holy Spirit, guiding our thoughts through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's pitch into 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, just a moment here. I'm going to move some. There we go. Okay. All right. This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. Now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him, but... We shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Okay, so let's look at these verses. Verses 1 and 2, look at them together. This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before, and foretell as though were present the second time. Now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before, and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Okay, so there's the question of how many times... Paul had visited Corinth, and uh, I think the majority view seems to be three, but I haven't read all of the commentators or all of the scholars on this. Some say two, some say three, and uh, what, what he's saying by this. Anyway, the point is, whether it be that he's ready to come the third time, or whether it is, and I lean towards the view that this, he actually has been twice and he's going to come the third time, because we know that the book of Acts doesn't tell us everything that happened in Paul's life. Well, anyway, he came. And um, <clears throat> so he's telling in the here, he's foretelling, or he's telling, listen, when I come, it's going to be like this. And that is that he will potentially be, or he is ready to be, very stern and very strict and, and rather sharp with them if necessary. He, uh, he may have to deal very very sternly with them. Now, of course, Paul was in a position different from any uh, Christian leader who might be on the earth today, any uh, missionary or any elder of any church. Paul's an apostle, and, and there are no apostles on earth today, and there have not been any apostles living on earth uh, for more than 1,900 years. 
but I have known of Christian leaders who have dealt sternly with people. It's kind of interesting. Uh, in the journalist John Wesley, you talk about, you know, you travel, oh, we travel thousands of miles and on horseback, all of it. And uh, you go around to different churches and say, you know, I visited the church at so-and-so and I had to put X number of people out of fellowship and so forth because they weren't, they were not uh, living up to, up to what they should be or whatever. Uh, John Wesley was quite a guy. I'm just as glad that uh, he's not coming around, uh, you know, putting people out of churches here. And, and maybe that needed to be done. I, I'm not certainly putting myself up as a judge over him. But the Apostle Paul was an apostle, right? And so he can deal sternly with them. And as I mentioned last week, this could uh, extend beyond just speaking harshly to them. This wouldn't necessarily just be um, bad boys. Don't do that. But, um, you know, Paul had, uh, through God's power and according to God's will, Paul had struck Elymas blind. The apostle Peter had struck Ananias and Sapphira, again, by the power of God. And according to God's will, struck Ananias and Sapphira dead or had declared that they would drop down dead. And they did. So, um, and, you know, I, I probably should say that more to be more accurate, Paul declared that Elymas would be blind. Because that's what he said. You will be blind. And Elymas was blind for a time, as Paul had said. So uh, it wasn't, It wasn't again, I want to say that Paul or Peter did I, these things by themselves. They did not. But knowing that God wanted to do that and that God was going to do that, they said, God's going to do this. And he did. And if I were in the church of Corinth, I would want to make sure that I was not uh, on the receiving end of anything like that. Okay, verse 3. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, of Christ speaking in me, literally of the Christ who speaks in me. So it was not so much, although it was in part, that the Corinthians were saying, well, Paul, how do we know Christ is really speaking in you? That was part of it, that Christ is really speaking through Paul. Apparently Paul's enemies within the church, the Judaizers, the false teachers there at Corinth had been saying that kind of thing to them. I didn't know Paul's really, or, or Christ is really speaking through Paul. But not as much that as actually, how do we know that the Christ, who is speaking in you, you say, is really as powerful <clears throat> as you say he is? And what, what, what proof can you give us of this Christ who's speaking through you? And he says, Christ is not weak toward you. Again, in trying to figure out what the false teachers in Corinth were saying, we uh, are kind of in the situation of listening to one side of a telephone conversation. We hear what Paul is saying to them, and from this, we gather apparently the false teachers were suggesting that Paul is weak toward you, or excuse me, that Christ is weak toward you. Christ is actually weak toward you. What a thing to say. They were using the <clears throat> offense of the cross as a stumbling block. Offense is stumbling block, the stumbling block of the cross. And throughout the Roman world, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified to the Greeks, that's to the Gentiles, foolishness. Now, to the Gentiles, it was just foolishness to believe that someone who had been crucified could possibly be the Son of God. I mean, 
First of all, crucifixion isn't even for Roman citizens. Crucifixion is not for the better sort of people. Crucifixion is for slaves and foreigners and non-citizens. So uh, that, that made it a sort of, it was a demeaning thing already. And then, of course, crucifixion was the most horrible, painful, humiliating form of death that Roman ingenuity, which was considerable, could think up. And wow, your God is crucified? Like, whose God gets crucified? That's, that must be a weak God to them, to their minds. That's the, what the Roman assumption is. And uh, we have different things today. I, I don't know if that, that may be one of them, very likely, but uh, the, the offense of the cross, but other things that our world finds offensive. How can you say this? I think we have today the offense of God's word. We say God's word is truth. Christ said God's word is truth. And in our society, to say God's word is truth, this book is true. And then you start saying some things from this book that our society doesn't particularly like. That's very offensive to them. Well, in that day and age, your God was crucified. Well, that's just, oh, that can't be. Oh, we can't believe that. That's too weak. Paul says, well, you seek a proof of what kind of Christ it is, what kind of God this is who speaks through me. Well, Paul says, that can be arranged. Paul assures the Corinthians that Christ is not weak toward them, but is working mightily among them. Now, on that among them bit, you see, but mighty in you. Um, once again, we have the ambiguity of the English language. Because unlike a number of other languages, uh, German being one of them, um, English has only one form of you, which can be either plural or singular. So um, when we say you there, we can't see by the English whether plural or singular is meant, whether this is collective or individual. In fact, it's collective. What it means here is not, it's not referring here to the presence of the Holy Spirit in each believer. Yes, the Holy Spirit is present in each believer. We read that elsewhere in Scripture. That's well established. If any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his, Paul wrote in Romans, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's a truth, but not the truth that we're talking about in this verse. Rather, it refers to Christ's presence among his people. That is, well, his people, or more precisely, let me, let me refine that, among the people who identify themselves as belonging to him. That is, the visible church. Of the visible church, that's not a, a, an expression that we find in the Bible. Christians have used that expression for a long time, and it refers to those who name the name of Christ. Remember, it's over there in Hebrews, uh, we read the foundation of God standeth sure. I think it's in Hebrews. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. Let everyone that nameth the name of the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So the Lord knows those who are really his. He knows them from those who just say they're his and aren't really. And let everyone who names the name of Christ, everyone who's going around uh, taking for himself the title of Christian, depart from iniquity. And uh, so the visible church 
uh, as, as the term was coined, was to express the idea of those who claim, those who name the name of Christ, those who claim to be Christians. That's the visible church. When the world looks at the church, it sees all those who claim to be Christians. If that just made you shudder, uh, it certainly does for me. Um, recent times, well, yeah, we've seen a lot of, I've seen a number of things that just made me shudder and cringe. Um, and that's not unusual. Um, and that goes a long way back. It goes all the way back to Bible times, to New Testament times. There would be some among the church, among those who truly belong to Christ, but not of them, and who would be naming the name of Christ, but falsely so, the visible church, not the true church. And uh, this refers to Christ's presence among that assembly. So there are, there are, of course, there are the assembly of the genuine believers, right? Over two or three are gathered in my name, Christ said, there am I in the midst of them, specifically referring to church discipline, which is not unrelated to this subject, but also um, just referring to any, when, when God's people gather in Christ's name, Christ is, is there in the midst of them, but also present with them would be, and, and I think we can say in the church at Corinth, it seems like a pretty safe guest, and I'm afraid this has also been true in many other churches, and God grant that it may be true, may not be true among us, God knows, but there were others who, who professed Christ, but did not possess Christ. I think we're familiar with that concept. Well, Christ is presence, present among them, and when the apostle comes, when Paul arrives, and he starts to set things in order in the church in Corinth, and he starts to take care of, of the false teachers, and the people who have gone off after the false teachers, and the people who have uh, 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 taken the lead in, in forming factions and dividing the church wrongly against each other. I know some, he said it's necessary there be factions among you that those who are approved might be revealed. In other words, sometimes when everybody else is doing wrong and you just keep doing right, that's going to make you stick out. It's going to make you look like you're a faction. Not that that faction is okay if you just keep following the Lord. But uh, those who have been dividing the church and those who have been spreading false teaching and following false teaching, and those, he said, we covered this last week, those who have uh, just been going right on in their sin that they were before they came to Christ, somehow have gotten the notion they didn't have to give up their old sinful ways when they came to Christ. And he's going to start setting all that to rights, if he has to, when he, when he comes. And he says, you'll find out um, that Christ is working mightily among you when that time comes. Okay, verse 4. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. To be crucified, with all that went with it, appeared very weak. And the crucifixion was, as I said, the most shameful, humiliating, and also painful, miserable, awful death that Roman ingenuity could devise. And um, one doesn't really even like to speak of it in detail. It's 
extremely unpleasant. And they said he was crucified in weakness. Now, was Christ truly weak when he was on the cross? Well, I would say yes and no. I mean, no, no one took his life from him. He laid it down himself. Yes, he could have gotten down off the cross at any time he chose to do so. So in that sense, no, he was not weak. He was still the God of the universe. I think he could have blasted those who were mocking him. Could very easily have done that. But of course he didn't. You know, there was a taunt that his mockers threw at him that was, in an odd way, true. He saved others himself he cannot save. Well, of course, he could have saved himself, but not if he was going to save others, not if he was going to save us. If he was going to save us, he was going to have to stay on the cross. He was going to have to be weak, or he was going to have to act out all of our weakness, bear all of our sins, all of our infirmities, all of our shortcomings, all of that. He was going to have to be made sin for us. In that sense, you would say he was crucified in weakness. Not because he was not by his nature strong, he obviously was omnipotent, but he chose to not use that. He chose not to use it, but to be crucified in all of the weakness that was inherently rightfully ours. Yet he, Christ, lives by the power of God. God raised him up. Amen. So um, that's, that's the proof and demonstration of the power of God in Christ. And he says, then Paul says, for we also are weak in him. Or are we weaker in Christ than we would be outside of Christ? Would we be, I mean, not maybe the apostles, but now we believers, would we be stronger in this world? Would we be more able to accomplish our goals and win victories in this world if we were just not in Christ? If we would just be ungodly, would we be more powerful in this world? Well, I don't believe we would. I don't believe so at all. I don't think there's anything stronger than a Christian who uh, is meek, that is, shows, who has meekness, that is, strength under control, who has power over his own spirit, who has power over temptation, can win the victory over temptation, and over sin, and the world, and the devil. I don't think there's anything stronger than that. I don't think that's weak at all. But sometimes the world takes us for weak. We're strong enough to turn the other cheek. The world thinks we're weak. We're strong enough to say no to temptation, not to engage in the sin and the debauchery of this world. And the world says we're weak. Oh, yeah. You're, you Christians, you don't go drinking, and uh, you don't go out carousing, and you can't engage in this kind of fun and that kind of fun. And uh, 
There may be pleasures in sin for a season, but we have respect under the recompense of the reward by faith. And so, uh, yeah, strong enough not to be in that. So it's not that being in Christ makes us weak. It's certainly not that being in Christ made the apostle weak. But he seemed weak, again, to the world's way of looking at things. Uh, the world's way of looking at things. That people who are rich and powerful and who live a life of comfort and who have all kinds of stuff, they're strong. People who suffer uh, privation, people who have to work, I mean, when they could demand that other people support them, but they work as a tent maker to, to have food to eat, yeah, they're weak. People who go around and travel all the time just, just to try to help other people, and they get shipwrecked, and they get in floods and river crossings, and they get beaten up and robbed by bandits and things like that. Yeah, they're weak. That's what the world says, but that's not really true. And Paul says, you know, we may appear weak in Christ, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Now we shall live with him by the power of God, you could say, and I think it would be part of what Paul is saying here, that this means someday we're going to live in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not going to be suffering, and we're not going to be doing without. And it's going to be glory there. The glory will be all his we'll get to enjoy it to all eternity. Yeah, we won't be weak there. We won't be, we won't be suffering there. That's true. So we shall live with him by the power of God. But notice the last couple of words. We need to make sure we don't leave off the prepositional phrases at the end of things like this that give their specific meaning. We shall live by the power by him. We shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So when he's not not just in heaven. In fact, specifically, what he's talking about here is is not what he's going to do in heaven. Yes, he is going to do that. But uh, live in heaven and have a great time up there, as I trust you and I plan to do too. But um, rather, when I, Paul, am among you, Corinthians, I am going to live by the power of God toward you. So again, that if that they're going to see God's power through Paul, and they need to get in line before that happens, it would be better for them. So uh, Paul is, is going to display God's power to them when he gets there. Verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified. So the Corinthians had been saying, some of them, not all of them, but some of them in the church at Corinth had been saying, and it had gotten back to Paul. He heard these reports. He heard some reports from the household of Chloe, and uh, undoubtedly Altitus uh, has brought in some reports and so forth. But the, they've been saying, well, you know, is, is Christ really powerful? Is Christ really speaking through Paul? Is Christ really powerful at all? Because you know what? We don't really feel like he's so powerful. You know, I don't really feel his power of Christ. You keep talking about power over temptation. I don't feel any power over temptation. I still feel just as much a desire to sin as ever. I'm not I. Hopefully not I. But those folks at Corinth, this is what they're thinking or saying, had been saying. 
So Paul says, well, well, you folks who, who want to examine as to whether Christ, examine Christ, whether he's powerful or not, you want to uh, test Christ, whether he's powerful or not. Well, how about you examine yourself? Examine here is paradzete, which means to test or try. The phrase examine yourselves is literally yourselves examine. Heotus paradzete, yourselves examine. The emphasis is on yourselves. Hey, you, you guys that want to be testing and trying, you know, is Christ really that powerful? Because I'm in this power of Christ. I don't feel like he's that powerful. Listen, you're, you're in no position to examine Christ, whether he's powerful. How about you examine yourself? whether you are even in the faith. Examine yourself, yourselves examine. Um, test, dokimadzete, is to put to the test, to prove, to examine, to distinguish by testing, or to approve after testing. The quality control testing, make sure that you can stamp this, yes, this passes, muster, dokimadzete. So, uh, again, very, very similar in meaning to peradzete, dokimadzete, to test, to prove, to examine. Like assaying uh, a, um, a metal. Uh, you know, you see people in the old movies, you know, they, they think they found gold or they think there's a coin and they don't know if it's real or not. It's supposed to be solid gold, so they bite it. Because gold is really soft and I, I've never tried to bite into gold with my teeth. I've seen some jolly students do some ill-advised things in attempting to... Uh, uh, identify certain minerals. I won't go into that, but uh, I, for one thing, they don't pass around gold samples in geology lab because it just wouldn't be a good idea. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, gold is soft, and, and you would test it that way. You would dokimadzete the gold. Test it. Dokimadzete. So it says, Test yourselves. And again, it's literally yourselves test. Hail tus dokimadzete. So it's, you know, emphasis on yourselves. Hail tus paradzete. Hail tus dokimadzete. You guys test yourselves. Listen, the question here is not whether Christ is powerful. He's powerful. You'll find that out one way or another sooner or later. And, you know, the Apostle Paul, yeah, I, I think I can say with certainty, I, as, as one preacher used to say, without fear of successful contradiction. And I think, uh, I don't, I don't feel like I'd be in danger of eating crow with this one. The Apostle Paul, in, in the flesh, is not going to visit uh, Las Colinas. Uh, he's not going to be there. Um, if he showed up today, I, I'm afraid it, it would shock poor brother Caleb. Uh, but I, I'm sure Paul and Caleb would wind up having a great discussion, but he's not going to do that. Um, uh, Apostle Paul is not going to come to, to where we gather every Sunday and uh, say, and now you... Uh, believers and professed, oh my, I hope not, professed believers, uh, I'm, I'm going to sort things out here and I'm going to set things to right. I don't, he's not going to do that. But we all will find out sooner or later, one way or another, that Christ is powerful, right? That we know. Someday every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen. That's a reality. You can you can bet on it just as sure as tomorrow's sunrise, actually a lot surer than tomorrow's sunrise. If the Lord comes back before tomorrow's sunrise, the sun won't rise, I don't think. But um, anyway, however that may be, however he plans to do it, it'd be fine with me. But um, 
that's a certainty that that will happen someday. And every one of us shall uh, give account of ourselves to God. So we're going to find out that Christ is powerful. Yes. So better to find out that he's powerful in us and make sure that he's powerful in us now. So Christ, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians, test yourselves, examine yourselves to make sure that you are in the faith. Have you just been kidding yourself this whole time? Have you been a professing Christian, but a practicing atheist? Have you been living as though there was no Holy Spirit? As though Christ really were not in you, maybe you've been living that way because he really isn't in you. Well, Paul says to the Corinthians, we need to find out about this, and you first of all, and it is in your interest to test yourself and examine yourself and find out about that. Now, is Paul suggesting that people should doubt their salvation? Well, sometimes doubting our salvation, doubting one's salvation, can be an exercise in lack of faith, the kind of uh, lack of faith that just will not take yes for an answer. That's not what he's talking about. But this is a sober, careful examination. Am I in the faith? You know, if I had been going around saying, you know, I don't feel any, I don't feel any power of Christ in me. I don't feel any power over temptation. That would be good reason for me to seriously sit down and do some serious thinking and some serious soul searching. Now, do I actually believe in the real Jesus Christ who is actually real? So the real one, is that a reality? And I really do I indeed have faith in Christ. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. If uh, do I not have fruits of the Spirit in my life? If not, why not? What's going on? I need to find out about that if that be the case. So test yourselves, he says. And do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Why are you, you know, why are you asking, is, is Christ powerful? Well, don't you know? Because if you don't know, he says, unless indeed you are disqualified. Now, disqualified is a bit of a, uh, the word, therefore, whoops, what did I do? I'm sorry. I do that. Uh, pardon me. Okay. All right. It's good. I don't know what I did there, but. Something that doesn't happen in Zoom. Sorry for that. Uh, I messed up my screen, and I don't know if I messed up yours or not, but uh, good. So I, I've got my act together again momentarily. This is what happens when you turn an aged uh, history professor loose on a bunch of technology. You can expect glitches. Well, anyway, okay. So disqualified. Right. Adokimoi. Adokimoi. That's the Greek word. And that word is a bit of a challenge for translators. Disqualified is a pretty good word for this. Probably you're going to take adokimoi and you're going to translate it with one English word. That's it'd be hard to come up with a better one than disqualified. Uh, reprobate is used in the old King James. Probably not as good. Um, it's it's in the ballpark. I mean Makes some sense, but it's it's not it's not as good as disqualified. 
what adokimoi means, you can see there the um, similarity to dokimanzete, put to the test, prove, examine, distinguish by testing, or prove after testing. Adokimoi uh, is like dokimanzete, but with the prefix a, which means not, not approved, not uh, approved after testing. Well, after testing, this, this um, substance is not approved. Uh, be like uh, you know a drug that was uh, tested for use and and uh, they gave it to people but they uh, it turned into newts or something and maybe they got better but still we don't be able to turn on people to turn into newts so um, yeah that that drug is adokimoi it's not approved well some uh, several English translations um, to the best of my memory I think New American Standard and English Standard version I think translate adokimoi in this spot um, unless you have failed the test which is slightly less literal than disqualified but it does get the sense the idea is we had a little uh, Stephen yes I just letting you know that you stopped screen sharing somehow or other so oh. You might want to reshare your slides there. Will do. Thank you. Okay. I was afraid that it happened with that mess up a little bit ago. And indeed it did. Sorry about that. Uh, we'll get there eventually. Boom. There it is. Thank you. Good. Thank you. And the aged history professor gets back on the track. All right, so to be adokimoi is we, we tried to dokimanzite, and if I may use that Greek word in, in the wrong case there, but I cannot I cannot conjugate Greek verbs uh, much, and so uh, and, but it didn't work out. You just you failed the test. So folks, Christ is in you, and Christ is powerful, and if Christ is in you, He's powerful in you. And if that's not going on, well, then apparently you failed the test. If the power of Christ is not at work in you, you have not passed the test. Okay. Well, we move on here. I'm not quite still where I want to be with my slides. There we go. Okay. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified disqualified, not talking why again. Having failed the test in this case, and in the context that Paul's speaking here, um, by, um, okay, it did it again. Um, uh, I didn't. Okay. All right. Something else happened because I didn't even touch my mouse when that happened. I trust you can all see my slides again. I trust you can all hear me. We are seeing and hearing you just fine. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, good. So Paul is in the context of saying, you know, somebody who doesn't have any of the power of Christ in him at all. This might well be Adokimoi have failed the test of actually being found to be in the faith. 
And Paul says, I'm confident that you, you, I trust that you Corinthians will not find me to be adokimoi. Uh, he doesn't use, well, yeah, adokimoi, disqualified, not, not lacking in the power of God when he comes. Okay, verse 7 and 8, we'll take them together. Now, I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable though we may seem disqualified. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. So Paul's prayer for the Corinthians is they would do what is right. Even if that means he won't get a chance to demonstrate the power of his apostolic authority over them. He's not looking for an opportunity to show up in Corinth and start putting people out of the church. He really wants to show up in Corinth and not put people out of the church. And not have to deal harshly with them. He's made it clear that he doesn't want to do that kind of thing. And he certainly doesn't want to, my goodness, come there and start uh, declaring that God's going to strike somebody blind or strike somebody dead, as had happened in other churches. So, uh, no, that's not what he wants. He wants them to do what's right. His goal is not to demonstrate his own authority, to advance the truth of Christ. He wants Christ to be honored among the believers in Corinth, the visible church of Corinth. He doesn't want to demonstrate the power that God has given him in the, uh, in the visible church by, by uh, having to deal harshly with people. But he wants to see the visible church corresponding exactly with the true church in Corinth. That's what we'd like to see too. This is where we can do nothing against the truth before the truth. In other words, and this is important to remember, when God gives any power to anybody, um, whether it be God gives a gift to a person in a particular time and place and situation to heal a, another person of a, of a disease, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Notice it's the Lord who raises him up. The power is the Lord's, and it really remains the Lord's the whole time. Paul, or God gave Paul authority. He gave him some power to back up that authority. But that wasn't Paul's authority. That wasn't Paul's power. Not, it was coming through Paul, but it wasn't uh, his own to do with as he would. And again, I find it interesting that when Peter uh, dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, he didn't say, I strike you dead. He said, the young men are waiting and they're going to carry you out. When Sapphira came, you think the young men are waiting in the back and they're going to carry you out too like they did your husband. That happened in Paul. When he spoke to Elemas, he said, you know, be blind or anything like that. He said, therefore, you will be blind for a time and not able to see the sun. And that happened. God did it. And Paul was just um, calling it like it was. So again, he couldn't do anything against the truth but only for the truth. Verses 9 and 10, we take them again together. For we are glad when we are weak and we are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for the edification, for edification and not for destruction. So Paul was always glad when the Corinthians' good conduct deprived him of an opportunity to display the power entrusted in for administering discipline. Even if it made, even if refraining made him look weak. Even if 
enemies would come in and say, again, Paul's weak. He didn't do anything. He didn't strike anybody dead. He didn't strike anybody blind. He didn't kick anybody out of the church. In mind, I, I don't know that he ever did that any other time other than there on Cyprus with Elemis. We just really don't know. But, you know, even if not using his power, whatever way that he could use that, even if that meant that some people come up, well, see, we told you Paul, Paul didn't have any power. If, if that happened because all those within the visible church, all the, the believers there at Corinth were all uh, loving the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and doing their best to be of one mind and to, to pull together and love one another, well, that was fine with Paul, even if it made him look weak. And that's why he wrote the letter, so that they would do right without having to be harshly corrected. After all, he wouldn't have had to write this letter if he just wanted to show up in Corinth and lower the boom on them. Those of us who may have some, for example, in our family, we should make sure that we never take joy or pleasure in lowering the boom on people. Uh, if we are enjoying it, we are doing it just plain in the wrong spirit. If we, if we, um, find out about something that's wrong and uh, wherever we may, our, our authority may attend, uh, extend and, and we have a feeling that, oh, it's going to be a pleasure to lower the boom on those people to, to read them the riot act or set them straight or sort them out. Probably need to stop, wait till we stop feeling like it would be a pleasure. Uh, if we can do that, there, there's sometimes very small children, we just need to take ourselves in hand immediately and, um, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I need to be in self a state of self-control right now. But no, it's not that Paul enjoyed uh, exerting his authority or correcting people. He wanted them to do what was right. He wanted to find them doing what was right so he could commend them and, and love on them and, and they could just have a good time of rejoicing together in the Lord. Verse 11, finally, brethren, farewell. Uh, become, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Uh, finally, brethren, we, we find that in some of Paul's epistles, the expression, and he's got quite a ways to go in the epistle. In fact, in this case, we just have a few verses left, three, I believe. Finally, here in the Greek actually means, as to what remains. Okay, as to everything else. So it's the last big point in the outline. Having covered the other major points in my outline, now I come to the last major point in my outline. So if the preacher says that in uh, the sense in which the Greek word behind it was, was translated, um, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to end right away. And uh, you can start your mouth watering about that roast that's in the oven or whatever. It just means that uh, now, regarding everything else, brethren, Farewell. Farewell, there, the Greek word actually is sometimes translated hail. It can be used as a greeting or as a farewell. That's kind of different. Um, I'm trying to think of any other word in English, any language that I know that can be used equally as a greeting as, as a farewell. Um, I, I can't really think of one, but apparently that is. So it's all-purpose greeting. So, um, yeah. So as to everything else, brethren, greetings. He says, become complete. Uh, the Holy Spirit has begun a good work in you. He's begun the work of making you holy. 
So cooperate with him. Become complete. Well, isn't the Holy Spirit going to do it in me regardless? So I'm not going to try? That's your attitude. See that point we mentioned above. Uh, examine yourself. Test yourself whether you're in the faith. If you have no desire to serve the Lord, you have no desire for victory over temptation, you have no desire to walk with the Lord and please Him, something is not right. Something needs to be checked up. So become complete. The Holy Spirit is working on making you holy. That's good news. You want to be holy if you're in Christ. So work with Him. Work with the Holy Spirit. Take it by the job, as the saying is. Go at it uh, systematically and methodically, never imagining for a moment or letting anyone else imagine that you think that you are earning your salvation because you're not. But this is what you want to do. This is who you are. It's, it's what you do in Christ. The Holy Spirit's doing this. Work with him in it. Cooperate with him. Be of good comfort. Literally be encouraged or be comforted or be exhorted. This is not quite the same, uh, it's not at all actually the same Greek word, not even a, a similar word to the one that our Lord used when he told his disciples, be of good cheer. But I think the spirit is the same. Christians have good reason to feel, to be of good comfort, to be of good cheer, to be encouraged and comforted. God is with us. God has given, a, given us many great and precious promises. And his promises are sure, every one of them is sure, that he would never leave us or forsake us, that his grace will always be sufficient for us in every situation so that we would always have all sufficiency in all things. Yes, those promises. And those are absolutely certain. You can, figuratively speaking, take those to the bank. Oh, but those promises are, are better and surer than anything you could ever take to the bank. They're certain. We have good reason to be comforted and encouraged. He says, live in peace. Yes, we should. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That's going to mean saying no to certain urges that we sometimes have when we see things. We have to let some things go by. Not in us, but in others. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of love, agape, of course, God's all-giving love, and of peace will be with you. Ultimately, he's the God. Agape is part of his nature. That is his nature. God is agape. That's not to say that love is God, but God is love. And he's a God of peace. Where he reigns, peace prevails. And uh, now... He will be with you. Now, you say, but, but wait a minute. Didn't he say he'd be with us always? Didn't I just say that was the promises of God? That he would never leave us or forsake us. I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Yes, he's always with us. But there are ways in which we can enjoy more of his presence. We can enjoy more of his presence, feel more of his presence, sense more of his presence, uh, we will know and feel and experience that he is with us more when we walk in peace. Because he's the God of peace. When we walk in agape, 
because he's the God of agape. Final verses, real short ones. Last verses in the epistles to the Corinthians. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So greet one another with a customary greeting. It was customary in those days to kiss people that, that way. That doesn't mean uh, that we necessarily need to all start kissing one another in church because those of us who are introverts we're, in modern America would, would just probably die on the spot. But um, it was the customary greeting. Many times in America that's been shaking hands. Uh, for, some po for some people, in some reasons, it's a bit of a hug. Uh, nowadays, it's a fist bump, uh, but uh, it's the customary greeting, but do it in a way that's pure. In the early church, uh, men gre greeted men with a holy kiss. Nobody thought that that was perverted or anything like that. Um, but that was, that was pure, and women greeted women with a holy kiss. Uh, with us today, we could say, well, you know, if we're going to be hugging on our fellow believers, which I don't see anything wrong with that, if you're a man, if you want to hug a, a fellow believer who's a man, if you're a woman, you want to hug a, uh, another woman, that's fine. But we don't need to be uh, men and women who are not married to each other or, or close relatives, you know, uh, mothers and sons, fathers and daughters, of course, hug each other. That's fine. But those who are not close relatives in that way uh, do not need to be hugging one another. That would not be a holy kiss or a holy greeting. Um, and then all the saints greet you. Final word there. You know, it's nice to know that all the saints greet us. Have you ever visited a church that you've never been to before? You walked in there and, and by the time you left, you felt like you had known those people all your life. Um, uh, family and I visited a church like that in St. Charles, Missouri. Still, we still uh, stay in touch with those people. We visited there uh, one Sunday morning and Sunday evening and just felt like we'd always known them. It's good to know that our fellow believers in distant parts of the country, even in Missouri, my goodness, even in the St. Louis area, that's a shock. I'm joking. Friends in St. Louis, I'm joking. But even our fellow believers in distant lands, other side of the world, uh, there are brothers and sisters that we haven't met yet. That's good to know that we're one in Christ. Well, thank you all for your attention and through these weeks that we've covered these epistles. And uh, let's close now with prayer. Our Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for allowing us to study your word and for giving us your word. Help us to take it to heart and dwell on it, meditate on it constantly, day and night, that we may observe to do all that's written therein, that we may uh, know your power in our lives and live and walk pleasing to you.